talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This episode was created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction recorded by Andy Cohen. In today's episode, we'll listen to Gregorio Cohen's work on monuments and denials, creating and recreating history, that follows on from his book Reflections on the Aesthetic Experience, Psychoanalysis and the Uncanny. It is argued that denials are daily events at all levels of human existence. Denials can also work in a negative way. Memories, for example, can create events that might have never occurred. Even if not true, mnemic inventions may still make sense and become meaningful. Historical and religious moments are a case in point. They are political statements which work through denials, not always representing historical truths. Gregorio Cohen is a training analyst from the British Psychoanalytical Society. He lived in Australia, where he co-founded, together with Valley Shayo Cohen, the Brisbane Centre for Psychoanalytic Studies. His works have been translated into many languages. He is also a poet and a novelist. He published No Lost Certainties to be Recovered, Reflections on the Aesthetic Experience, Psychoanalysis and the Uncanny, and Considering the Nature of Psychoanalysis. He edited the British School of Psychoanalysis, The Independent Tradition, The Dead Mother, The Work of Andre Green, and British Psychoanalysis, New Perspectives in the Independent Tradition. He edited together with Rosine Perelberg, The Greening of Psychoanalysis, and co-authored with Andre Green, Love and Its Vicissitudes. Monuments and Denials. Creating and Recreating History. Denials of what we do not want to know, consciously and unconsciously, are common and daily events in the psychological lives of human beings. Denials can also work in a negative way. Individual or collective memory can create events that might never have occurred. And yet, even if not true, mnemic inventions may still make sense and become meaningful. Historical and religious monuments are a case in point, intended to celebrate important people and significant events They are political statements which do not always represent historical truth. They are excellent examples of how human beings distort and hide the truth through the process of denial and negation. Still, as we have witnessed in the last few months, there is nothing irreversible about the creation of a monument. Once created, they can also be destroyed. Looking back, this kind of destruction has gone on in history everywhere across time. According to the Hebrew Bible, God instructed the Israelites to destroy all the engraved stones and molded images and demolish the places of worship of the Canaanite as soon as they entered the Promised Land. A most significant example of ancient iconoclasm was the destruction of religious images in Egypt in the Amarna period, between 1353 and 1336 BC. Breaking with tradition, King Akhenaten suppressed all polytheistic practices, constituting perhaps the first true expression of monotheism in world history. He ordered the eradication of all traditional representations of Egyptian gods through the destruction of temples and monuments. 
every reference to them on tombs and temple walls, was systematically chills out. Aten, the king's heavenly father, became the one true god. Nevertheless, the religious reforms he instituted would not endure beyond his death. Tutankhamen, his son and successor, reversed his policies, bringing back all previous religious practices. However, his own efforts were cut short by his early death. Horemheb, one of his successors, destroyed the city of Akhenaten, erasing the dead king's name from history. Later, medieval Christians smashed sculptures of ancient Rome. Spanish conquerors destroyed temples of the Aztecs and the Incas, and so on. Iconoclasm prevailed, and it continues. After the protests, both peaceful and violent, that followed the killing of George Floyd in May, hundreds of statues of slave owners and traders were attacked, destroyed, or removed, mostly, but not exclusively, in the United States. As far as the particular case of the USA is concerned, people have been destroying and dismantling statues since its very foundation. In 1776, only five days after the ratification of the Declaration of Independence, soldiers and civilians destroyed a statue of King George III. Its lead melted down to make basketballs, possibly used against His Majesty's troops during the Revolutionary War. Since then, the list of similar events is very long. In the last 20 years, there have been innumerable acts of vandalism of monuments and memorials across all continents. Some of them have not been widely reported in the press, while others have become truly iconic. A few examples of the latter include the destruction of the Bamiyan statues of Buddha in central Afghanistan, the toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein, the golden statue of Gaddafi, and the destruction of the temple of Baal Shamin at Palmyra. In the wake of contemporary protest against racism by Black Lives Matter, the statues of slave owners and rich traders were torn down from their pedestals. In England, for example, the dumping in Bristol Harbour of the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston marked an important political moment. This was not an issue concerning black people only. The feelings of people of all backgrounds participating in this act of protest defied strict boundaries. Equally, the statue of Robert Milligan, owner of two sugar plantations, was removed from outside the Museum of London Docklands. At the same time, people gathered outside Oriel College, Oxford, demanding the removal of the statue of Cecil Rhodes, a protest which had started many years ago. While the monuments had been regarded with misplaced pride by previous generations, the message conveyed by these popular outbreaks against authority was clear. Something had to change. From the late 90s, around the time of the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the discovery of America, the destruction of statues of Christopher Columbus all across the Americas 
was barely reported by the press. For centuries, most historical accounts pointed to Christopher Columbus as a hero worthy of veneration, the one who had discovered the Americas. There was no mention of the abuses perpetrated by him and his companions against the indigenous people after his second arrival in 1543 at Hispaniola, nowadays Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Friar Bartolomé de las Casas wrote in his Brevísima Relación de la Destrucción de las Indias of 1552 that the indigenous population of Hispaniola was reduced from 400,000 to only 200 people. Although Columbus could not be held responsible for the first genocide that occurred years later in the rest of the continent, his actions became almost a template for those of later explorers and conquistadores. It is estimated that during the Spanish conquests of the Americas, up to 8 million indigenous people died. Although illnesses were an important factor, it is fair to assume that the indigenous population would have rebounded like the Europeans did, had it not been for enslavement, overwork, torture, and imposed famine. It can be argued that the monuments celebrating the discovery of the Americas systematically contributed to hiding the truth about the sordid details of slavery, sexual exploitation, degradation, murder, mutilation, terror, and cruel punishments inflicted on the African slaves as much as on the indigenous population. In the last decades, Latin Americans have felt encouraged to revisit their history, moving away from celebrating their connection with Spain, known for centuries as Madre Patria, motherland. Columbus was not, of course, the first explorer to arrive in America. Greenland, part of the continent of North America, had been inhabited at intervals over at least the last four and a half thousand years. Norsemen had settled the southern part of Greenland in the 10th century. Inuit people started arriving in the 13th century. New studies have shown that the indigenous population of America is genetically related to Polynesians who came to the Pacific coast hundreds of years before the Spaniards. The celebration of the so-called Dia de la Raza, Day of the Race, or Hispanic Heritage Day, was established by Spain in 1913 for their own political reasons. This explicit celebration of the white European race has been now abandoned by most Latin American countries. Either the day is simply ignored, or the name of the festivity has been changed to Day of Respect for Cultural Diversity, or Day of Cultures, or Day of Indigenous Resistance, an attempt at recognizing the ethnic and cultural existence of indigenous people, their legal status, and their communal ownership of the lands. In the last decade, violent protests have been occurring, not only in Latin American countries, but also in the USA. On the 12th of October, 2020, The Guardian reported that protesters pulled down statues of former presidents 
Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln in Portland, Oregon, in a declaration of rage over Columbus Day. The organizers of the event renamed the day Indigenous People's Day of Rage, indicating how much Native Americans consider the discovery of America as the beginning of centuries of oppression. According to Pierre Nora's book, Les Lieux de Mémoire, Places of Memory, history is a representation of the past that belongs to everyone and to no one. Nora argues that a historian turns to these places of memory for the study of history. They can be material, symbolic, or functional. Time and change play important roles in considering their nature. Most importantly, according to Nora, places of memory have the capacity for metamorphosis. In other words, their significance can change, following an endless recycling of their meaning and an unpredictable proliferation of their ramifications. All places of memory, from the individual to the collective, move in constant interaction. But one thing is certain, they do not need to be destroyed for their meaning and significance to change. One such example is the Warsaw Ghetto Monument, which is perhaps the most famous memorial simultaneously commemorating, on the one hand, the extermination of the Jews of Warsaw, while also aiming to honor the heroism of the Jewish resistance against the Nazis in 1944. Created to mark the tragic event of the past, the monument has been experienced differently over the years by different people. Since the unveiling of the monument on 19th of April, 1948, the fifth anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, the monument has become a focal point for many political and collective actions. Innumerable individuals and groups have used it, each for their own purpose. The monument which emerged from a tragic collective tombstone was a statement of survival. Although the State of Israel was founded one month later, there was no explicit reference to it in the monument. Nevertheless, the monument itself, as well as the ghetto uprising, were retrospectively interpreted by later writers, politicians and historians as a symbol of the Jews on the road to Palestine. Throughout the years, there have been many recasting of its meaning. Every visit to the place, every ceremony, every reference, either to the original event or to the monument, introduced a new and at times unpredictable meaning. For example, for years, the monument was regarded with resentment by the Poles of Warsaw, believing that its presence became a poignant reminder of the absence of any commemorative monument of their own rebellion and resistance to the Nazis the Polish uprising of 1944. In the 1980s, the monument was used by Solidarity for its meetings, adopting it as its own symbol of Polish rebellion, turning the Jewish fighters and national heroes of Polish resistance. Inevitably, this had immediate political consequences. For many Jews, it implied the exclusion of any reference to the Polish participation in the massacre of Jews. 
1983, a delegation from the Palestine Liberation Organization held a ceremony at the Ghetto Monument, declaring that as Jews were then justified to rise up, up against their Nazi murderers, so now are the Palestinians justified in their own struggle with the Zionists. Five years later, in April 1988, during the Intifada in Gaza and the West Bank, another Palestinian delegation laid a wreath dedicated in Polish to those who perished in the ghetto uprising from those who perished in the Palestinian uprising. Some years earlier, on the 7th of December 1970, Willy Brandt, then Chancellor of the Federal Republic of Germany, traveled to Poland on a state visit. As part of the official program, Brandt attended a commemoration of the Jewish victims of the ghetto uprising. Brandt was well aware of the importance of this state visit. At a certain point, he fell to his knees in front of the monument, which appeared to be a spontaneous, personal gesture, seen by many as an act of apology and repentance. Although Brandt had not spoken of collective guilt, his act became a new symbolic historical place of memory. Later, the opening of the new Jewish Museum in 2013, just a few meters opposite the monument, has added yet another new layer of meaning to the memory of the Polish Jews. The ghetto monument appears now as an extension of the museum's exhibitions, reaffirming how the once largest Jewish community in the world was almost entirely wiped out during the Holocaust. The different uses of the ghetto monument is a good example of how a site of memory fully confirms the idea of Pierre Nora, already quoted. Sites of memory only exist because of their capacity for metamorphosis, an endless recycling of their meaning, and an unpredictable proliferation of their ramifications. These sites are never created by a knowledge that is certain and secure. They do not possess an essential truth. They become significant by giving structure to historical memories, but they can never be univocal. They come to occupy contradictory, conflicting, paradoxical places in the imagination of the present as well as of the future. In psychoanalysis, the process of retroactive resignification of upper coup, when remembrance is changed repeatedly by the complex interaction of new associations and experiences, has been well established. Politics greatly depend upon such readings and revisions. Foucault argued that if one controls people's memory, one controls their dynamism. It is vital to have possession of this memory, to control it, administer it, tell it what it must contain. People who have been conquered, colonized, and exploited, the working classes and women all over the world, know full well how their memory and their history have been thus controlled. The big, overstated, often ugly monuments standing in our cities tend to dominate the landscape they inhabit. Most of them are distorted, simplified representations of peoples and events which reflect a mystifying nationalistic grandiosity, 
with an implicit overemphasis on acts of violence from the past. They erase time, proposing that we should suspend any critical questioning of the historical truth. In their attempt to affirm a sense of national pride, they promote inaccurate perceptions of the country's past. In one form or another, they are based on denials. Stanley Cohen described the many strategies by which human beings simply do not want to know, describing them as states of denial that operate in groups, small and large institutions, governments and societies. On a daily basis, psychoanalysts can confirm how much such denials are extremely common for the individual subjects in treatment, who create and recreate their own personal places of memory through systematic, persistent conscious and unconscious denials, writing and rewriting their particular narratives of life. It was Freud who first pointed out how the distortion of historical records and the reinvention of the past through denials are used to advance political causes. In politics, both past and present, duplicity and pretense usually go hand in hand with cynicism, suspicion and contempt. One way or another, negation and denial are at the heart of all these expressions, which can be malignant and destructive. This does not apply only to Holocaust deniers. At present, we are witness to a number of contemporary political leaders who are farcically inclined to reinvent the present as much as the past. Their denials consist mainly of assertions that everything is fake news, that something did not happen, it does not exist, it's not true, or is not known about. Thank you. Thank you.